Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Good morning. So we're very honored here today to have Dr. Hirshhorn here from the University of Toronto. He's one of the great figures in male and female reconstruction. Dr. Hirshhorn graduated from McGill University Medical School and completed his residency at the University of Toronto, where I also completed my residency with Dr. Hirshhorn. He then went on to complete a fellowship in urodynamics, incontinence, and reconstruction at the Institute of Urology in London, England, and at Baylor in Houston. Currently, Dr. Hirshhorn is a, is a professor at the University of Toronto. He completed an 11-year term as university chair and ho is holder of the Martin Barkin Chair in Urologic Research. He's also the past president of the Canadian Urological Association and the past general secretary of the International Continent Society. Dr. Hirshhorn has numerous, numerous publications as well as awards. He has been the winner of the Lifetime Achievement Award from SUFU and the AUA Presidential Citation Award for contributions in research for the treatment of incontinence in OAB. Dr. Hirshhorn has been a hugely influential teacher and a mentor to many urologists, including myself. He is definitely the hardest working individual you will ever meet and the most passionate about his work. He treats every patient with the greatest respect, which I've really learned a lot from him, and is willing to take on the complicated patients that no one else will. And Dr. Hirshhorn, we have a couple questions for you before we get started. As I mentioned before, you're so passionate about your subspecialty. What advice do you have for residents who are in the process of choosing a subspecialty? Uh, it depends on where you practice and what the needs are. I think you have to look at the global situation in terms of um, what is required, where you're going to practice, and what kind of infrastructure support you're going to get. One of the issues that I faced over the years is that there really wasn't very much, and every day was an uphill battle in order to in order to uh, state how important the problem is. But if you go at it with passion and you actually have some support, you can succeed in your career. So just look at the, uh, the global situation, what the needs are, where you want to work. That's excellent advice. We have one more question for you as well before we get started. How has COVID-19 affected your practice, surgical schedule, and the resident learning in Toronto? Uh, it's had a, a massive effect. Um, uh, there's no, uh, until today, we, we're doing an elective case, one case, there's been no elective surgery whatsoever. It's only cancer or emergency surgery. Uh, there are no clinics in the hospital. All of it is uh, conducted on the telephone. Uh, so it has a, a massive effect. The residents were initially, for a period of time, were told to actually stay away. Um, the urology residents, uh, just a few of them were, were uh, recommissioned to uh, intensive cares but most of them just came in to do rounds and they stayed out of the hospital for any kind of clinical work. We have fellows, uh, there is cancer surgery, emergency surgery going on, but until this week, the residents were actually asked to stay home. So it really has had a massive effect. Great, all right. And Dr. Hirshhorn today is going to talk about uh, bowel and urologic surgery. Thank you very much, uh, Doreen. And thank you for asking me to uh, give this talk. As I mentioned to one of the residents yesterday, it's actually uh, quite easy to go to New York between eight and nine in the morning and then come back for the rest of the day. So <laughs> here goes. 
So uh, University of Toronto is the largest uh, medical school in the country. It uh, caters to a population of about five or six million people. There's one uh, urology program throughout the city. So we have 27 full-time, uh, geographic full-time staff, 24 residents, 19 fellows, and three PhD scientists. And we're located at, at the six major hospital centers that are, although are independent functionally, are actually linked in terms of academic programs and many uh, interests that, uh, uh, that supersede the barriers, the physical barriers of the institutions. So it's actually a wonderful place uh, to work and also to train, that's what I'm told by the residents. Cystoplasty started many years ago. Uh, the late 1800s, uh, it talked about ileal patches, and then the early 1900s, colonic segments, and then in the 40s, sigmoid segments. But it wasn't until the onset or the realization that intermittent catheterization was part of the armamentarium did it become feasible. And that uh, took place, as many of you know, actually uh, around the Second World War. <clears throat> the um, changes that were brought to uh, augmentation uh, in the early 50s by Willard Goodwin were actually published uh, at that time. And so there isn't that much that we do in terms of shaping the bowel uh, that uh, is different between now and uh, almost 70 years ago. Detubularization was realized to be very important to lower the pressure. So uh, when we do augmentation cystoplasty, the concerns are bowel physiology because there are changes uh, as a result of electrolyte changes, uh, because as you know, the bowel is metabolically active and it can actually change the electrolyte milieu of the body depending on renal function. There's alterations in bowel function uh, because we take out segments that impact on how it functions. There's technical features I alluded to, detubularization. Um, we'll talk about having a very wide anastomosis with the bladder to make sure that if we're dealing with an overactive or, or hyperactive bladder, we're not going to get one emptying into the other. Um, there's also the realization that these patients uh, have multiple problems and we have to address it at the time of the reconstruction, such as continence, ureteral problems, and I mentioned before intermittent catheterization. And we also have to be cognizant of the complications that are reported and that we experience. We may experience new complications that perhaps have not been reported. The bowel physiology and what we use includes ileum. There's water and electrolyte absorption, sodium chloride absorption, bicarbonate excretion, bile salt metabolism, vitamin B12 absorption, the cecum and ascending colon uh, involve water and electrolyte absorption, and also stool storage. Um, it was realized years ago, and this is a publication from late uh, 1980s. However, it was realized even before then in the 50s and 60s that detubularization in order to get rid of the peristaltic waves of the uh, bowel can result in greater capacity, lower pressure, shorter length, and a more compliant segment. And it prevents the synchronized circular contractions most of the time. This is just an example of detubularizing a segment of small bowel to use in a reconstruction. Uh, what is very important also uh, when one is selecting the bowel segment, especially with colon, is to realize that there are some areas of deficient vasculature. There's uh, changes in the, uh, uh, in the vascular supply, so these can be relatively deficient in blood supply. So you have to be very careful about using these areas. Uh, nutritional consequences I mentioned, uh, you try to avoid diarrhea as much as possible. Some of these patients with neurologic disease may be prone to 
uh, diarrhea as a result of uh, uh, other disturbances, and we don't want to do something that's going to make it worse. Radiation, and some of these patients have had radiation, has an impact on the bowel, and we have to be cognizant of that. And also, uh, we're dealing with a population, adults, where colonic disease is very common. We may have to screen some of these patients for colonic disease in order to identify it, uh, but also uh, to, um, uh, to uh, mitigate uh, subsequent problems. I actually was doing a revision of an Indiana pouch in a patient and I found a colonic polyp. So you have to be cognizant of that. Bile acids uh, are created in the liver and secreted into the small bowel. And the circulation in involves, after enterohepatic circulation and excretion, resorption in the terminal ileum. Bile acids, as you know, are very important for fat metabolism and fat absorption. And they have an impact if they get into the colon. And uh, diarrhea, I mentioned, can be from a short bowel because of the water that's not reabsorbed. Uh, when we resect the ileocecal valve, bacterial overgrowth that uh, goes into the small bowel may destroy bile acids. There may be unabsorbed fatty acids uh, that get in that are colonic irritants as well. Although uh, using the ileocecal valve in a reconstruction, by and large, doesn't result in diarrhea, but theoretically it can. It can in some patients. I mentioned bile acid malabsorption. Uh, it interferes with water and electrolyte absorption in the colon uh, if it gets in there. And fat malabsorption may be from inadequate bile acid secretion from the liver. And they're all grades of it. And the worst one is steatorrhea, where the patient has totally uncontrolled diarrhea as a result of fat that gets into the bowel. Uh, bladder characteristics I mentioned, an intact bladder can empty into the augmentation. We sometimes see patients who have had augmentations many years ago before the, uh, that idea of detubularization and opening up the bladder was addressed, and they have essentially uh, an augmentation that doesn't do anything. Wide anastomosis was described many years ago uh, by a Spanish surgeon, uh, and he actually did a super trigonal excision. What we do today is called a clam cystoplasty, which was reported uh, from the UK in the early 90s to widely open the bladder in order to get a wide anastomosis. And this applies to everybody in whom we do an augment in order to actually get a better capacity of the bladder and mitigate any of the uninhibited contractions that may be going through that bladder. The aims of reconstruction in general are for upper tract preservation, to create a low pressure reservoir, to have urinary continence or acceptable continence as much as possible, but we also have to address the way it empties. And that usually in most of these patients, not all, involves intermittent catheterization. <laughs> so there is a spectrum, uh, perhaps a ladder uh, um, uh, approach to uh, continent surgery from injectables, which by and large haven't been all that successful, slings, devices, bladder neck reconstruction, and then going on to a continent stobor or Mitrofenov, if we can say, or if we have the patient in whom we can't really rehabilitate that urethra for use, uh, or that urethra is not available or not easy for the patient in order to catheterize, so we go to a continent stoma. Uh, this is a, a, a picture of a reconstruction that's probably still done, which uh, involves reconstructing the bladder neck by creating a posterior trigonal tube, uh, reimplanting the ureters, and folding over the bladder flaps, the young D's letter better procedure, which I have occasionally done and still done in the extra fee patients. Uh, continent surgery can involve a sling, 
either a fascial sling or a mesh sling. And this happens to be a picture from a patient who was a male spinal cord patient. And what I did over the years was to actually take out some of the bladder neck in order to taper it and then doing a sling as well. And in females, we do slings, uh, usually fascial slings, but certainly there can be mesh. And I don't hesitate to use mesh at the time of open surgery when I'm trying to get continence in a patulous or, um, or a poor, poorly functioning urethra. Remember, these patients are going to be on, usually on intermittent catheterization. Artificial sphincter has been used. There is a very high infection rate, especially when using it uh, simultaneously with bowel. And it's mainly because of the need for self-catheterization. So the revision and infection rate approaches 50% in these patients. So we have to be cognizant of it. Um, injectable agents, as I said, are occasionally used. They haven't been all that successful because most of the time they don't create the degree of continence that we're, we're striving for, but they can, they can be useful in some cases. What I've used and we'll talk about soon is actually uh, doing continent stomas by incorporating a valve, a nipple valve into the reconstruction or the augmentation at the same time in a core patient. I found it quite successful. Um, most people have abandoned this technique because of all the problems that have been faced in, in uh, the coke pouch reconstructions over the years. So it's by and large, uh, largely abandoned. But we'll talk about the different types of establishing a metrophenol for continent stomas towards the end. As I mentioned, bladder emptying is important. Uh, some patients can strain to void, especially the, the post-surgical uh, 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 cancer surgery, pelvic surgery, uh, for example, rectal, re uh, rectal cancer surgery, who've had partial cystectomies or most of the bladder taken out uh, and reconstruct using uh, uh, segment. A lot of these patients do fairly well with straining. Outlet relaxing surgery has been described, but most of the time these patients, uh, because a lot of them have neurologic disease, are on self-catheterization. Upper tract preservation is, a, a, is key, of course, to following these patients. We've established or tried to establish a, a low-pressure reservoir, efficient emptying. Uh, regarding the ureters, that's a judgment call whether you need reflux prevention, and there are different ways of doing that. But we know from uh, Dr. Studer's uh, neobladders that a lot of the time we do not need to protect the upper tracts with uh, anti-reflux techniques because by and large with normal kidneys and even those that may have been subject to reflux with poor compliance, they actually settle down and reflux is not, not an issue by and large most of the time. So when we have a patient for a cystoplasty, what do we do? Well, clearly a history and physical, we look at the indications. But in terms of the specifics, we have to look at the patient's cognition and uh, being prepared for self-catheterization and for self-monitoring and, and for notifying uh, the, the, the team when there's a problem. We have to assess the motivation, disability, the need for CIC. Uh, one thing that I, I didn't put down is also geographic location and infrastructure, because some of these patients who are caught in or or happen to live in rural areas, it's it probably far easier for that patient to have a, a, a diversion that may actually be commonly seen in that location. And so problems are can be dealt with locally versus something like this. The, by and large, these patients have to fulfill these criteria. And also, um, they have to have something in the community for support. Laboratory investigations, assessing renal function, uh, infection history, cytology, because we always keep in the back of our mind about the possibility of existing, pre-existent cancer and also development of cancer, which I'll talk about soon. 
imaging, ultrasound, CT, MR, depending, cystoreuthrogram, uh, bowel contrast studies occasionally if necessary. I do cystoscopy, all of them don't hesitate to biopsy the bladder if there's some issues. Urinamic studies are very helpful in order to assess the function of the lower urinary tract, especially uh, compliance, continence, uh, capacity, and, uh, and uh, uh, overactivity. Um, we have to assess some, some way of assessing continence at the time. Uh, I tend to uh, take a history, uh, for example, a patient in a wheelchair who is a candidate for this. Does that patient leak on transferring? Uh, if not associated with an uninhibited contraction and there's any evidence of, of incontinence or history of uh, leakage on exertion, then I don't hesitate to do a continence uh, procedure at the same time. There is some controversy in the literature. Some people wait until the augmentation or the reconstruction is done to assess the need, but I, I've tended to address the urethral incomp incompetence at the time of the reconstruction. Complications are very important. General complications, these are large operations with bowel surgery. There can be anastomotic leaks, wound infections, bowel obstructions. There's a small mortality rate. Uh, I mentioned nutritional consequences, uh, diarrhea, malabsorption, visual disturbances, uh, vitamin D, uh, osteomalacia a little bit more soon, and B12 anemia, which takes uh, three to six years to become manifest if we take away their ability to uh, absorb vitamin B, vitamin B12, but it's something to be aware of. And colon, we can uh, result, as I mentioned, in uh, shorter bowel and lack of, of storage, and they may have a uh, change in, in bowel function. Metabolic, it's usually seen with uh, poor renal function. Uh, with using ileum and colon, the, the characteristic uh, metabolic abnormality is a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis with hypokalemic with hypokalemia, and it's a complicated process, intestinal absorption of ammonium and chloride, bicarbonate excretion, and renal potassium loss. So if you trace it out, you can actually see the, uh, what, what results. These can be devastating. Remember, this is usually in the setting of poor renal function, and perhaps that patient may not have been a candidate for an augmentation, probably a, an incontinent diversion. However, sometimes we're forced to deal with it, and we, uh, prevention is usually uh, administering bicarb or some kind of alkalinizing agent. Osteomalacia, uh, acidosis, renal calcium excretion, and vitamin D resistance. There can be an effect on the bones because of the uh, uh, vitamin D problems. Rupture, it's quite rare, but it can happen. Uh, these may be surgical emergencies, but certainly hospitalization is essentially an essential in monitoring. It can be from overdistension with a mucus plug and the patient fails to self-catheterize. We have to suspect it with acute abdominal pain, peritonitis, and we, we, we image these patients. However, sometimes the imaging is negative because the hole has sealed, although we have indirect evidence of a leak with, with a lot of fluid on CT and the patient is profoundly ill and we have to suspect perhaps a rupture. We have to decide whether this patient merits conservative management versus intervention, which is laparotomy, drainage, and possible repair of the bladder. Um, you have to assess the patient on, on, it, it's on the patient's own merits. Cancer, as I mentioned, uh, is a definite uh, concern long-term. We know that there's a fairly high incidence in patients who've had ureterosigmoidostomies. Uh, it's not specifically known with other segments. However, we have some evidence in the literature now as to what to expect. 
Uh, it may be from hyperosmolar microenvironments, such as in the bladder, it may impair DNA damage, uh, damage signaling and repair. The effect may be more pronounced in tissues not normally exposed to such conditions, such as intestine. And there are compounds that originate from a mixture of urine and feces that may be carcinogenic. Genic. There's urinary stasis, chronic inflammation, infection, and disruption of normal cell-to-cell -cell contact, which we see uh, with dissimilar tissue, putting bowel and bladder together. They just don't talk to each other and they can't protect each other. And there are multiple references for this. There isn't that much in the literature because it's not that common. This is a case report of a woman that we did years ago, 29-year-old woman, Four years after she had an undiversion with a reconstruction in bowel, and uh, four years later she developed an adenocarcinoma right at the anastomosis. She actually eventually died of metastatic disease after undergoing cystectomy, conduit, and chemotherapy. So, um, uh, Uh, this is a case control study from, from the U.S. Uh, published about 10 years ago, uh, looking at uh, patients uh, who had cystoplasties versus patients uh, without augmentation who had multiple comorbidities in their bladder. They had neurogenic bladder, post-valves, extrophy. They actually found, although the incidence of bladder cancer was a little bit higher, it wasn't statistically significant. Statistically significant. So the association is there, but it's not a strong association. Is it a result of the bowel or is it a result of all the comorbidities in that patient who is on self-catheterization? We don't know yet. Uh, this is a recent study uh, from France looking at the French tumor registry in patients who had cystoplasties, and they only found 16 patients. They found adenocarcinomas with gastrocystoplasties and urothelial cancers with other segments and most of them were diagnosed in the late stage, and that's an issue. Uh, positive lymph nodes, distal mets, the one-year survival was relatively low. Well, there were only three out of 16 patients who were disease-free at 70 months. So we don't see it that often, but we have to keep an eye out for it. Unfortunately, there's no consensus on how to follow these patients. Other problems, mucus. Uh, mucus is secreted by the uh, intestine. There are different techniques that can be to mitigate that. I tend to use routine irrigation on a regular basis, which has some good evidence for that. Stones, very common, up to 50% and multiple reasons for it. Uh, irrigation helps. And I, I frequently put the patients on what's called stone surveillance in order to make sure that if there are stones, they're very small, easy to take out. Incontinence can happen, hyperactive bowel segments, the bladder can change. There can be something wrong with the urethral outlet or the uh, stomal uh, outlet that can uh, uh, create the incontinence after the augmentation. So I'd like to talk about my experience with augmentations, which to date consists of about 244 patients, 144 male, females and 100 males. The mean age, as you see, is relatively young, 38 years. Uh, 174 were neurogenic and 70% were on, in wheelchairs. And the reason was mainly intractable incontinence. Uh, 27 patients had ileal conduits initially early in the series and they were undiverted to uh, um, uh, in situ diversions uh, using uh, cystoplasties. Uh, 63 of the patients had, had ureteral procedures and most of them, about 153, of the neurogenics had urethral or bladder neck procedures in order to create continence. 
um, uh, associated with or without continent stomas. Now, it, it's of note that 33 of these patients were post-pelvic cancer resection or radiation, so they're not neurogenic, but I've used it in the reconstruction. 85 had spina bifida, 59 spinal cords, uh, MS, other neurological, uh, five uh, extrafix epispadius, uh, and about 70 or so non-neurologic, including the 33 cancer radiation. Bowel segments, most of these were uh, um, uh, ileum, uh, so that's the only conflict of interest that I have to declare. I seem to prefer ileum versus other segments, uh, but I don't have any financial interest in that. So colonic segments, uh, sigmoid transverse colon in one, and ileocecal segment in, in a number of them. Uh, there were 124 augmentations uh, along with 118 continent stomas. Uh, so the total is that. Uh, so I incorporated the augment with a stoma in about 118 patients. And two of the patients actually had the augments right to the urethra because they had had cystectomies years before that as part of their reconstruction and ileal conduits. So uh, I'd just like to talk about uh, augmentation cystoplasty with continent stoma and go into the technique that I've used relatively successfully over the years, which is the hemicoque cystoplasty. Uh, in patients requiring augmentation who could not do urethral CIC, uh, and it's using uh, usually ileum, uh, occasionally sigmoid, uh, with an intersuscepted nipple valve. Now, why do I do this? Well, I've, I've tended to do it from years back, and it seemed to be successful without much in the way of problems, and I've traced the early ones versus the later ones, and it seems to measure up to what's reported in the literature, and patients seem to be doing fairly well. Uh, the efferent limb for self-CIC through the stoma. The alternative to an appendiceal uh, metrophenol, Yang Monty with an augmentation, or an Indiana-type ileocecal segment, which is quite attractive because we know the technology. We can adapt it from doing Indiana pouches in order to doing augmentations. So this is what it can look like at the end. This is a stylized drawing. Here's the uh, uh, clam bladder. Here's the detubularized segment along with the intersuscepted valve. And here's the segment, uh, the efferent limb that in this case, it goes to the wrong place, but that's just because of the picture. And this will go up to the abdominal wall. So this is the segment that's used. And this is a reconstruction that we did uh, about, um, it's about a year ago now. It's a little more than a year uh, in a uh, young male patient who had a partially closed uh, extrophy, bladder extrophy and epispadius. He had come from, immigrated to Toronto from Africa when he was very young and uh, his uh, bladder was partially closed and he had just a, a, a cloaca uh, at the base of his uh, epispadius penis uh, that drained urine all the time. He was really he relatively healthy young man who actually uh, was a sports uh, um, enthusiast and uh, played soccer with diapers. Uh, and uh, we did the reconstruction, um, which involved uh, having Armando Lorenzo from SickKids and, and uh, I, uh, uh, he helped me do the, uh, along with Ron Kadama, my colleague, helped me do the, the penis and the urethra, which we actually just closed off and, and did an augment with a continent stoma, closed his bladder neck, and incorporated this type of hemicoque ileocystoplasty. So this is the segment of small intestine. Uh, the uh, 
uh, uh, proximal part is uh, detubularized uh, uh, in the standard fashion, and the distal part is used for the uh, intussusceptive nipple. Here is the distal part. Uh, take away the uh, peritoneum and defat the mesentery on both sides. And this is the segment uh, to be intussusceptive. That's my thumb going to it. Then I clamp these vessels right in the middle of the uh, nipple valve, then reach in with some uh, Babcocks uh, intussuscept the bowel, you can see, and then staple it on three sides. There's one side, two sides, and the third side actually down to the, to the wall of the augment in order to stabilize the nipple, and then uh, take the segment which has been detubularized and put it down to the bladder. Here's the nipple valve. It doesn't show up all that well. You can't see the rugae, but that's actually the nipple valve, and that's the external part. That's the efferent limb. Uh, the efferent limb uh, is then tapered, just like uh, one does with an Indiana pouch with a stapler. Excise that, oversew it to get rid of the what appears to be the staples, and then uh, here's the completed segment. The, the bladder is down there. There's the SP tube. There's the uh, intussusceptive valve in here. It's already been closed, and that's the efferent limb that goes out to the skin. When I do small stomas, I, I usually use a V-shaped incision rather than a circle. I'm, again, just doing a very wide anastomosis in order to mitigate the problem of stomal stenosis, which unfortunately is quite common. Uh, then uh, you can see that the uh, segments being brought through the abdominal wall. I tend to stabilize it on the inside. This guy was quite thin and, and, and muscular, and it, it looks good in the pictures, but a lot of these patients just don't look that good at the time of the surgery, but we took advantage and actually made a video of it. So here's the, uh, the stoma. Here's the uh, SP tube. Uh, uh, actually, that's a Jackton Pratt, and you can see the reconstruction, and you can see the penis, uh, the epispadius has been corrected along with the cordy, and that's uh, his lower abdominal uh, wall. And he actually did extremely well. He actually, uh, we left in the SB tube, and he actually developed stones on the SB tube. They actually had to take him to the operating room to uh, put a scope through there in order to break the stones up off the off the SB tube in order to get it out. That was his only complication, which was uh, quite unsettling, but. He's done extremely well. This is the cystogram uh, post-op. You can see the bladder neck's been closed. And you can see the shadow of the intussuscepted valve along with the catheter going through. And he's been fine now for over a year, self-catheterizing. I have to call him back to come in for his appointments because he's quite busy and he's back into competitive sports. So the diagnosis in these patients primarily with neurologic, uh, non-neurologic in about 16, and a whole host of various kinds of of uh, diagnostic uh, problems, including post-radiation uh, in some of them uh, who have unrehabilitatable urethras and small capacity bladders. Uh, urethral procedures uh, include slings, uh, both in males and females. If I'm doing it, males uh, did a bladder neck tapering. Occasionally, uh, these urethras are just not rehabilitatable, so we just close them off. In some of them, they did not need procedures, and some of them, their urethras are to were totally impassable. They were occluded to start with. Uh, the revision rate is something that we have to grapple with, and, and that involved 68 of these patients, so it was 61%, and the overall uh, uh, experience has been quite similar. Uh, 31 of them required open surgery, uh, including bladder neck plasty, stoma revisions, closure of leak, 
Valve revision is what we really look at, and it's about 12 to 14%. And in the literature, it's about the same uh, with all the other types of uh, uh, continent stomas or metrophenols. Uh, parastomal hernias, we certainly see. Uh, failure involving uh, patients who are reconstructed with allele conduits, and, and some of them required bladder neck closure secondarily. The most common problem, though, is bladder stones. And yes, it may be related in part to the staples, which occasionally fall off, but not always, because we know that bladder stones are fairly common, uh, especially patients who have metrophenols and closed bladder necks, because there's a little pool of urine that sits at the bottom, mucus gets into it, and they form stones. So we have to do something to prevent that, usually with irrigation and judicious monitoring. Uh, the stones do not become, a, they're not a problem. Occasionally, if there's a stenosis that's minimal, just do a stomal incision. I tried collagen injection in one patient, but it wasn't successful. Um, augmentations uh, are, work remarkably well, and this is uniform. They tend to improve bladder capacity and lower the pressure at capacity in a significant way. And that's widely reported in the literature. Pregnancy and delivery, uh, six of these patients uh, overall uh, have had successful pregnancies. You can see four of them involve C-sections. Uh, I actually scrubbed on two patients. Um, uh, the first one, uh, KW, uh, her first uh, case, uh, I, I scrubbed on that. Uh, the second time she gave birth, I wasn't available, and they actually made a hole in her augment. So it's nice to be there. Uh, this patient, uh, about a year and a half ago, I was there, and I just got word this week that she's pregnant again. She loved that. Uh, she, she had a, a wonderful baby, and it's made a difference, so she's pregnant again. So a couple of vaginal births. So pregnancy and delivery is definitely possible uh, with these uh, young females. A malignancy four patients out of 200 or so. I uh, don't include the cancer patients, they haven't, but this is the non-cancer patients. I think the cancer patients may be at risk a little bit higher. Um, uh, the age at augment, uh, you can see here, uh, at age uh, 20 to 46, uh, colon, ileum in all of the rest. The year at which the diagnosis after the reconstruction, uh, the first patient was 20 years, she died. The second patient I mentioned before, four years, she died. The third patient, 15, he was diagnosed when it was metastatic and he died. And this patient just made the diagnosis about a month ago, uh, did a biopsy. It was a high-grade urethelial cancer. And last Friday, I just said, I just did a cystectomy of the augment and the bladder. I don't know the pathology yet, but it was high-grade urethelial and hopefully we got it in time. So as is reported in the literature, it's a very high mortality rate. It may be related to the tumor, but it may be related to the difficulty in making a diagnosis early on. There is controversy regarding monitoring and cystoscopy. I don't have the answer. I do scope them on a regular basis at two years, three years, whatever. And, uh, and my experience unfortunately taught me that it's not 10 years or 20 years. There's some risk that starts in fairly early on. The mean follow-up uh, with the hemicoques is nine years. 90% are managing with CIC and pads. 12 failures, uh, eight have catheters, four of ileal conduits, 11 have died of unrelated causes, and one from urothelial cancer I mentioned after 15 years. 
Um, the results in the uh, neurogenic, the mean follow-up is 10 years, 152, most of them are managing with CIC and PADS, uh, 20 failures, 13 catheters, seven conduits, and 19 died, including three from urothelial cancers. So overall, uh, augmentations and specifically the hemicokes have done quite well. Cystoplasty outcomes in general, all authors report improvement in bladder capacity and compliance. More than 90% achieve nocturnal continence and 91 to 100% diurnal continence. Perhaps in mine, it's not that high. Uh, it's probably 80 to 85 to 90%, but again, it depends on how judicious you follow them and what questions you ask. Two quality of life studies report improvements of 90%, uh, and there's a high satisfaction reported after about 15 years of follow-up. So in terms of a, a beneficial procedure for the specific or the correct indication, it seems that it's a very ben beneficial procedure. What about numbers of augmentations? Well, this is a report from uh, 2013 uh, looking at uh, KID, which is Kids Inpatient Database, 2000 to 2009, about 800 augmentations in the 2000 versus 620, uh, Length of stay went down. Uh, complication rate uh, is probably underreported, uh, but they noted a 25% decrease, decrease in augmentations at that time. There's, something, there's some studies in the literature that have shown similar numbers in terms of fall, but a recent study, just EPUB uh, from the States, published in Neurology uh, from PHIS, which is Pediatric Health Information System, uh, and it went 10 year period from 2008, uh, sorry, this is 2019, uh, 38 hospitals out of 52. Uh, and they looked at the numbers of hospitals that did more than five. Uh, there were a total of 18,600 pediatric uh, myelomeningocele ad, uh, admissions and 4.8% had uh, augmentations, a little bit more in females. The median length of stay is down a bit but they noted no significant annual change. So there probably was a fall uh, before 2000, 2010, uh, but since then, there probably is stability. And perhaps there was a fall because of, I would say Botox came on around that time. And now these are the uh, perhaps failures or patients who, who cannot be served well with other things. So there seems to be fairly good stability. Just, uh, I'd like to talk about some cases as an illustration before opening up to questions. This is one of my early patients, 24-year-old uh, with indwelling catheter, spina bifida, wheelchair bound, good cognitive function. She was on urethral CIC until uh, she, it became unmanageable. Previous history, bowel function was acceptable. And she had, of course, previous back and lower limb surgery. And this is an old patient. So you can see she had an IVP, bilateral hydronephrosis with bad looking kidneys. Real function was fairly normal. Uh, creatinine was about 24. Cystogram bilateral reflux. Uh, creatinine 25, electrolytes normal. Cystoscopy, very incompetent urethra. And you can see uh, she's got a heavily trabeculated bladder. Uh, and her urethral was very patulous, put my finger into it. Uh, UDS capacity was only 50 cc's with very low pressure leakage. So I was able to, uh, I did uh, a continence procedure on her, augmented her bladder. You can see her ureters uh, did not um, actually uh, reimplant her ureters, used sigmoid because uh, she had a very uh, 
uh, uh, accentuated lordosis, uh, and her small intestine was way up, and what was available and accessible was sigmoid. So detubularized sigmoid, sorry, I didn't do a sling, I actually did a young D's lead better bladder neck reconstruction, that was in early days. Uh, and uh, this is her IVP. Remember, this was before uh, CT urograms, but you can see that there was tremendous improvement in her IVP postoperatively, and she did well up to four years. This is another patient uh, recently, a uh, 56-year-old woman who had bilateral ureteral obstruction. She had radiation for carcinoma of the cervix stage 2b, uh, high-dose brachy uh, with external beam. It was completed in December of 2011, and two months later, she had bilateral hydronephrosis, um, and she required bilateral nephrostomy tubes for obstruction. She was very upset because she wasn't prepared for this devastating complication. And of course, they said, oh, we've never seen this before. So here she is uh, with her uh, bilateral nephrostomy tubes. You can see that the ureters go down to just below or just around the pelvic brim. Uh, fortunately, her cancer is, is fine. Uh, her bladder capacity on UDS was 130 cc. She was voiding nothing through her bladder. Uh, so I elected to do an augment. Her renal function was okay. Creatinine about 100, which is one in your, in your measures. Uh, this is the segment of intestine. The ure ureters were implanted there. Uh, detubularized the uh, lower portion. Uh, and here is the bladder over open. And there's the augment over here. Uh, and it just cupped it onto the open bladder uh, uh, with an SB tube. Uh, she uh, did very well. Uh, eventually, uh, cystogram showed uh, healing. Uh, she had bilateral uh, nephrostomy tubes. I had ureteral stents, which I took out. And uh, her, the referring urologist uh, in a city that's about uh, 45 miles away took out the um, uh, nephrostomy tubes, and she's done well. She's voiding. She's not on catheterization. And she's an extremely happy lady. Last patient, 25-year-old man with a closed bladder extrophy, uh, multiple reconstructive procedures. His bladder extrophy closure was somewhere, uh, I think it was uh, somewhere in, in Southeast Asia, even though he wasn't from there. Um, multiple reconstructive procedures for urinary incontinence. He had had a previous augmentation cystoplasty, but he had severe stress and urgency incontinence, recurrent uh, UTIs and pelvic pain with normal kidneys. And what you can see, he had a big bladder stone there. This is the uh, diastasis of his pubis. Uh, he may have had it put together as an infant, but most of the time they come apart. And this was wire that was caught because they closed him with wire. And that's a big bladder stone over here. And this is his bladder over here, a big augmentation. So what I, what I did was uh, I took out the, uh, uh, the stone, first of all, um, uh, and uh, did urodynamics. His capacity was fairly small because of the overactivity, and, uh, and he had severe, uh, very small capacity, and he leaked. Ileal segment, I added an ileal segment and did an intussusceptive nipple valve and closed his bladder, and he's been fine ever since. Uh, no... Uh, no issues with his bladder neck. Uh, he is dry on stomal CIC. He still developed occasional stones, which I'm able to manage just with a large scope uh, into the uh, intussusceptive valve and take it out as an outpatient. 
Now, what about continent catheterizing stomas? The best review I found was actually published about nine years ago. There may be something since then, but I haven't found it. And what they did was they looked at 801 reported articles with various types of uh, continent stomas. Their, uh, the overall classification are flat valves, nipple valves, and hydraulic valves. We tend not to do hydraulic valves. And they bo boiled it down to 54 articles. Um, uh, looking mainly at Mitrofenov, which as you know, uh, involves usually appendix, but can be other tubes uh, that are uh, isolated, reimplanted, and brought out to the skin. The Yang Monty, which is uh, two publications put together, uh, which is uh, reconfiguring a small segment of small intestine in various ways, and also the Casali modification in order to get a longer uh, by angulating the the uh, uh, retubularization. Uh, these are the, the general classes along with the intersusception. Now, the uh, ileocecal intersusception, which uh, involves a segment of, of uh, cecum onto the bladder, was reported uh, by Sarazdi in 1992 in a smaller number of cases. And there have been multiple reports in the literature based on the Indiana pouch. And it's a very good technique. And you handle the terminal ileum the same way that you do when you do an Indiana pouch. So that's another option. But what they did was they compared the various reports, catheterization problems, urinary incontinence, and stomal stenosis, and really did not, and remember these are case series, there are no comparative studies, no randomized studies, and, and found very, very similar results. Some are better, some are worse. Um, so they concluded that flaps and nipple valves are most commonly reported mostly case series with minor improvements, no RCTs. Each has unique advantages and disadvantages. So what should I do? Probably should do what you know how to do the best because you serve the patient the best that way. And then you have to make a decision on the basis of what you're dealing with in terms of the patient. Uh, and and uh, they can be certainly beneficial for the right patient. So where do we stand in conclusion with cystoplasty in 2020? Uh, there are expanded indications to some degree. Uh, there's a recognized need for ancillary procedures during and perhaps after the reconstruction. There are innovative techniques that are available, catheterizing stomas, variations. I didn't talk about laparoscopy or robotic, but to date, uh, although there's definite benefits, the actual time in surgery has been actually a little bit longer. Uh, and yet, it's, there's no reported advantage of the MIS techniques to date over open techniques. Intermittent catheterization is certainly essential. Complications are well described along with many reports of different types of management. So overall, it's still indicated for the right patient. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Hershorn. So Dr. McKiernan would like to say, Dr. James McKiernan, our chairman at Columbia would like to say a couple words and then we'll open up to questions. Thanks. Thanks very much, Doreen, and thank you, Dr. Hirshhorn. That was an amazing review, clearly probably one of the most prolific experiences in bowel reconstructive surgery in the world, and we're really honored and humbled to have you here virtually in New York City uh, during this critical time. Uh, the resident education challenges you mentioned in Toronto have been very similar in New York, and the idea of bringing in uh, a major international speaker like yourself to really educate and train our residents virtually is fantastic is probably better than having them operating with us quite frankly so we really appreciate your presence and your willingness to take this time with us and we look forward to hopefully having you 
hosted here at Columbia in person sometime in the near future. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Just echoing what uh, Dr. McKiernan said, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Hirshhorn. In terms of questions, Dr. Blade, a couple for you. Um, he was asking if you could uh, comment on the use of transverse and sigmoid colon for pouches in radiation patients. Well, again, uh, you have to assess what radiation history is. Um, I only had to use transverse colon in one patient who had had multiple bowel resections, but it's certainly possible. I do it more for uh, incontinent stomas if there's nothing else and there's shortage of ureter. Uh, as far as sigmoid is concerned, it's interesting. Um, we did a study with Sid Radomsky many years ago, which is still cited, uh, that uh, sigmoid may not provide the same kind of quiescent augment as ileum uh, because there can be some the, uh, contractions that are not mitigated with detubularization. Uh, I tend to use ileum because it's nice, it's compliant, it's easy to use, there's lots of it. Uh, but as I mentioned, in some patients, it's just not available because because some of these patients have a very accentuated lordosis and the mesentery may be short. Uh, and so I'll go to sigmoid and I've, I've, I've not had problems, although I'm very cognizant. If you get a large bowel leak, you got big problems. So you gotta be extra special, uh, extra specially cautious in your, in your uh, re in doing the anastomosis to make sure it's really watered, it's really tight and it's not gonna leak. That's the bowel leak postoperatively. Uh, so I, I can use it. I use it if it's available and detubularize the same way. It actually makes a very nice augmentation because it's so close. And a lot of these patients with spina bifida have very large sigmoids that are way down in the pelvis. What's more, sometimes the, the, uh, the bowel is so distended. So if you take out a little bit of segment, it makes actually easier closure at the end. I've actually used it in some patients uh, along with the uh, continent uh, uh, hemicoke, uh, that's the intersusceptible valve, do sort of a combined augment with that and uh, sigmoid and, and, and got away with it in some patients when it was necessary. So I, I tend to use what's available. I'm very cognizant of what was mentioned before in, in uh, the blood supply, uh, mobility, and what you're taking out in terms of what it can impact the patient with. Excellent. And then he, uh, he also asked about uh, any strategies for management of mucus uh, long-term after pouch placement. Well, there are a whole host of drugs that you can try. Um, uh, one of them is mucomist. I, I haven't had experience using it, but the most effective uh, treatment I have, and it's published too uh, previously, uh, uh, advising the patient to, do, to irrigate uh, three or four times a day in order to break up the mucus and get it out. And uh, they don't have to use saline. They don't even have to use uh, distilled water. They can use tap water. It's just like intermittent catheterization. Uh, most patients will use distilled water. So uh, judicious and frequent um, uh, irrigation, I think, is probably the best prevention. Thank you. And then uh, we had another question about um, the current state of engineered tissues uh, for um, bladder replacement and if you think they might be available anytime soon. Well, if you'd asked me the question in 1990, I would have said, boy, there's a lot of good work being done. I'm not aware of actually that much uh, that uh, has been done and published. I know there was an article in 1994 from 
Atala's group, uh, they had uh, uh, engineered bladder, uh, but uh, it, it hasn't worked out. So I, I have not been made aware of, or I haven't kept up, or I haven't seen reports of uh, tissue engineering for bladder replacement at this point, unfortunately. Um, and then Dr. Blavis had another question about uh, the use of an anterior flap rather than a clam for small capacity radiation bladders in order to avoid difficult posterior positions. Uh, the clam is just a general term. That is, I think you just have to see it as making uh, a very wide anastomosis. And I don't hesitate. It can be anterior posterior. It can be side to side. It can be a front smile. It can be a back smile. Whatever you have to use in order to incorporate that bowel, that piece of bowel, and to manipulate it in terms of, of using it down in the pelvis and getting out up to the abdominal wall if you have to do a, a continent stome at the time. So yes, I think that's a great uh, suggestion and, and, and I actually have done that as a result of Dr. Blavis's publications. So clamming is just a general term for making uh, a very wide incision in the bladder and you plan incision, your incision, depending on what you wanna use it for at the end of the reconstruction. So you have to have a strategic plan. And then he, he also asked you what the bladder cancers that you noted afterwards. Um, I believe you mentioned them previously. Uh, what did they look like? Um, kind of how were they noted? Well, um, the, uh, the first patient presented with metastatic disease, she had a small cell carcinoma with liver meds. And this was six months after having a normal ultrasound. Uh, the second patient, uh, she was, uh, it was just routine follow-up. And I noticed something looked really funny on cystoscopy and uh, did a biopsy and imaging, and it was uh, adenocarcinoma of the, uh, of the, at the segment. Uh, the third patient, uh, he had metastatic disease. And the fourth patient, who is actually in hospital now after her ileal conduit, uh, she uh, somehow missed her routine follow-up a year and a half ago. I scoped her a year and a half ago, and I, because of stones, I had her coming back every six months, and somehow she couldn't get in. And uh, she developed hematuria not too long ago. We noticed it on, my fellow noticed it on cystoscopy that she had an angry looking bladder mass. So it's not something that, and this is in the literature, you, it, it's, it's something that's difficult to sort of find. And the last one, perhaps we found in time, the others, uh, they presented fairly late. So uh, it's, it's metastatic disease or seeing something on cystoscopy that really doesn't look good. Now I biopsied other patients uh, in, in suspicious lesions and they've all, apart from these, turned out to be totally benign. So it's, it's a heightened awareness and doing whatever you can in order to make a diagnosis. Absolutely. Um, and then the last question was, when you're making that V shape, I believe you were discussing, what's the um, optimal angle and, and what might be the reasoning behind that? Well, you try to design it so that the, uh, the, uh, there are two Vs. One of them is the V in the skin. The other is the V in the, in the um, uh, 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 tube uh, of the bowel. You try to do it opposite to where the blood supply is coming in in order to realign them. So, um, and, but the thing is though that it's hard to plan, but because it's mobile, it can be twisted around as long as you do a wide anastomosis. I tend to do the V uh, from the side 
uh, from the sides and the apex towards the medial part of the body. And, and that was reasoning is basically made uh, on the basis of when the patient from the right side slides the catheter in, it slides over the skin and the V is at the bottom rather than sliding it over the, over the uh, anastomotic or the ridge part of the, uh, part of the anastomosis. And it's tended to work, uh, to work out. I do that for Mitrofenovs in general, either appendiceal or Monty as well, in order to get uh, a very wide skin anastomosis to mitigate uh, the problem of uh, stomal stenosis, which as you know, can be quite common uh, in these small stomas. Excellent. Um, well, thank you so